Welcome to the Women Governance Gurus podcast. We will listen to the journeys of women working in the field of corporate governance, their passions, struggles, and commitment to improving how companies and boards function. My name is Courtney Camlet, and my co-host is Liz Dunshi. Hi, everyone. We are both passionate about governance and want to spotlight some of the amazing women who share that passion. Hear what has surprised them over their career and various perspectives from different paths and industries. For this episode, we are talking with Stacey Gear, Executive Vice President, Chief Governance Officer, Deputy General Counsel, and Corporate Secretary at Primerica. Welcome, Stacey. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I've listened to your prior episodes, and I'm really just honored to be following women who I consider to be friends and mentors. So I'm super excited to talk to you both. And I just had to put one caveat in that my comments are my own, and they may not reflect the views of my company. Perfect, and we're delighted to have you, Stacey. So what was your path to becoming EVP, Chief Governance Officer, Deputy General Counsel, and Corporate Secretary at Primerica? So I actually decided when I was around 15 that I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. Um, I'd always kind of talked about becoming a lawyer, and I was really involved in junior achievement during high school. And while in high school, my JA companies had been sponsored by Sara Lee, uh, in fact, my first company made fudge, and we were called the Intrepid Fudge Company, and that company is probably my most successful company I've ever been involved in. We provided a 500% return to our stockholders after about four months. So, Wow. Um, yeah, we, we experienced beginner's luck. Um, but being involved in kind of starting a company and selling stock and selling a product and liquidating, I was, I was totally sold. So I spent my free time in high school going to national JA conferences and programs and competing in JA competitions. So at that time, I, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, so I decided to put my interests together and become what I called then a lawyer in a company. So to follow suit kind of on that plan, I went ahead and got an undergraduate degree in finance, and then I went to law school. And after that, I joined King & Spalding as an associate, um, stayed there, uh, made partners, stayed there, and then finally made the jump to in-house after working at the firm for around nine years. But this also was kind of part of my plan. I wanted to get some really solid training and broad exposure before going in-house. At King & Spalding, I was in banking at the beginning, but then I moved over to the corporate area where my practice focused on public offerings, private equity, and corporate governance with some M&A kind of thrown in. Although at the time, as you guys will remember, corporate governance wasn't the name of a specific area of, a, of practice. Um, it wasn't really a thing, although it was what I was doing. In 2001... Yes. Uh, I went to Bell South Corporation as their chief securities counsel, and there I, I focused on financings and SEC disclosures. And the lawyers were pretty divided by area, but I was able to work closely with lawyers and business clients who were involved in the proxy statement and in board matters. And then in 2006, I was part of a very small group of people that was told that AT&T would be buying Bell South. So I worked really long hours on that transaction for months. The deal closed, and I found that I had successfully worked myself out of a job. That's always so, a tough spot to find yourself. Yeah, so it was a successful deal, and then I was kind of back on the market. 
Um, I didn't want to move to Texas, which I, I could have done that um, and moved to Texas and worked for AT&T, but I didn't want to make that move. So then I joined a smaller company in Atlanta called Mueller Water Products that was the result of a combination of three business units of another public company that were then spun off. So th it was a much smaller company than Bell South and had a tiny legal department. So there I did a little bit of everything, and we were kind of starting to create things um, from scratch since it had been newly spun off. And then in 2009, I became aware of Primerica, which is a financial services company headquartered in the Atlanta area that was in the middle of doing an IPO. And that company had a 30-year history, and they were being spun off from Citigroup as an independent public company. Primerica sells its products through literally thousands of independent contractors, and the company mission is to help the middle market achieve financial independence. So it has a really unique business model and a pretty special corporate culture, especially for a company in the financial services industry. So I was super excited about that opportunity, and I joined them to do what they all kind of called the public company stuff, but no one at Primerica had, had worked in a public company other than being a small division of city. So I'm not sure if they really knew what they were hiring me to do, but I knew what they were hiring me to do. So it gave me a lot of flexibility to structure the company's corporate governance from the ground up in the way that I thought made the most sense. And since that time, I still have corporate governance, and I've taken on responsibility for additional areas in the legal department. Um, so it's been just a dream job, and in February, I will have been at Primerica for 10 years, um, and I'm still constantly learning new things. So it's been great. Congratulations on your milestone. Thank you. I don't know if we've ever talked to someone, or if I've ever talked to somebody, not just on this podcast, but in general, who decided when they were 15 that they wanted to be a corporate lawyer. So I was going to say, it sounds like it is your dream job. And then you said it. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's truly a true story. And my husband always tells people that he's never met anyone who, you know, figured out exactly what they wanted to do and went and did it and stuck with it. But I don't know. I just, I don't know. I guess I knew myself and I knew the things that interested me. And so found a way to kind of make them come together. You truly have a passion. Has there been anything that surprised you as you've progressed in your career, Stacey? Yeah. Um, you know, corporate governance is constantly changing. So you know, 20 years ago when I was just starting out at King & Spalding and we were giving companies advice on things like public disclosure or, you know, the stock option plans, at that time we didn't realize that corporate governance would, would, would become a cottage industry really with, you know, hundreds of of vendors and, and brand new issues arising daily. Um, you know, today governance is front page news. And so I don't think any of us foresaw that. Um, it's just, it's become part of, of everyday conversation. Um, I, I'm also surprised at just at the evolution of corporate governance issues. Things that were very prevalent years ago, like staggered boards maybe. Um, at the time we just took for granted that was just how things worked. Um, and, and fast forward to today, and they're criticized as being, you know, bad governance. Um, and so it's just, it's constantly moving. You can't really stand still. Um, even then, you know, ideas, or e even now, ideas that um, people have come up with that were viewed as maybe improving governance, like a virtual stockholder meeting that enables stockholders to participate without physically attending, 
are viewed by some people as being, you know, weak governance and not as good as the traditional in-person meeting. So there's so many constituents today, and each has their own agenda, and it can be it can be really difficult to find governance practices that everyone can agree on. Um, and I just looking back, I think that's probably been you know my biggest surprise is just how the area has um, has changed and evolved over the years. Well, and it certainly keeps things moving and fresh for people who practice in corporate governance because it is constantly changing. Absolutely. So what areas of governance internally and externally have changed the most, in your opinion, since you joined Primerica nine years ago? Well, first, I guess I'll talk about internally. You know, like I said, when I first joined the company, Primerica was a subsidiary of Citigroup. And I joined pretty late in the IPO process. They were, um, you know, getting ready to wrap up the, you know, the process and, and, and get on the road and sell the stock. So. Um, I joined, and less than eight weeks later, we were a public company. Um, so we had to build out a lot of the governance functions that had historically been housed at city. Things like um, enterprise risk management, internal audit, executive comp, and you know, create a board of directors with independent directors and do all that managing a board entails. So you know, that obviously is a huge change from when I first got there. And then along the way, we've made a bunch of changes to our governance as, you know, as things have evolved. You know, we shifted to annual election of directors. We adopted majority voting, proxy access. Again, these are things that, you know, didn't exist, you know, maybe 10 years ago, you know, or 20 years ago for sure. And as a, as a mid-cap company, we were not on the front lines of any of these changes. But when, you know, when some of them turned the corner from being, novel to being best practices or, you know, even being commonplace, that's when internally we started to embrace them. Um, looking externally at corporate governance, I think the biggest change is probably, you know, the environmental, social, and governance ESG stuff. Um, and that area, you know, is, is just, it's constantly changing. Um, I hope we get to a more meaningful place. Um, I hope it continues to change. Um, and, and, you know, and I'll explain that. The issue, I think, is that investors are really good at understanding, you know, each company and what ESG means to that company and what's material to each different company. And I think that we do a pretty good job of talking about it for a company of our size. But then you look at all the ESG ratings firms and various vendors in this space, and they're looking for that one-size-fits-all disclosure so we're a financial services company, and we sell term life insurance, and we sell mutual funds to the middle market. Um, we don't measure our carbon footprint, and we don't know our greenhouse gas emissions. But under the current reporting scheme, you know, it, it appears that unless we start measuring and disclosing those items, we won't get, you know, points for, for certain things. We won't get, as, you know, higher scores from the rating agencies. And obviously, you know, as the rating agencies kind of become more prevalent, they're having an impact on, you know, money managers and uh, index funds and, and all the things, you know, where the money is actually going. So we're listening to our investors and we're focusing on what's material to us. Um, as I think are all, you know, all companies, and you know, certainly that's where mid-cap companies are focusing. 
but there's a disconnect between what's material and what all the ratings firms are looking for. So that's changed because it's a completely new area, um, and I hope it, it keeps on changing. Another change, I think, is, um, is the role of the board and how boards function. And being on a board is a huge responsibility, and it's a lot of work. And there's all kinds of aspects of board service that are getting um, scrutinized like never before in terms of, you know, how many boards a director serves on or how much directors are getting paid. And meanwhile, the role of the board members is expanding into new areas and topics that were never embraced in the boardroom before. Um, I mentioned this earlier, but corporate governance itself hasn't always been a term that was widely understood. So I've been inv uh, involved with the Society for Corporate Governance for close to 20 years. And as, as you both know, it's an organization that itself has evolved and it's gone through you know, multiple name changes since um, when I first joined, it was called the American Society of Corporate Secretaries. And as part of the society, I recently um, had the opportunity to co-chair a task force that introduced a new certification program for corporate governance professionals, which we're super excited about. The purpose of the program is to elevate the role of, of corporate governance professionals but what was involved in creating the certification, um, it, was, it was a whole area that I never knew existed. First, we had to define what we mean by corporate governance itself and what corporate governance professionals do. And then we worked with certification experts to ensure that we adhered to recognized accreditation standards. And that group helped us to develop a question data bank and create a special corporate governance structure within the society itself to ensure that the certification process remained impartial. So the project itself almost was a microcosm of corporate governance. I was not involved in writing any of the test questions um, because I took the beta test earlier this year, and I'm now proud to say that I am a certified corporate governance professional. Congratulations. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. There are not very many people who can say that yet, but we hope that the certification gains popularity and establishes, you know, a baseline for, for people who work in this area to demonstrate a certain level of proficiency. So that has been just a really kind of unique project and a great opportunity. One last item, I've talked about tons of changes, but there's, there's been so many changes in this area. One final item is the extent of coordination and cooperation among all the different organizations that are in governance. So it used to really kind of be, you know, there were issuers and there were law firms and there were investors. Um, but, you know, there's also proxy solicitors and transfer agents and the SEC and stock exchanges and, and vendors of all types. And we all talk pretty regularly. I mean, we go to each other's conferences and we speak on each other's panels. Um, and it's really been um, really interesting to kind of watch all the various organizations come together and share um, their own views on governance um, in a kind of a cross-functional way. You know, I think we all want the same thing and that we want capital markets that are robust and that are growing. Um, but when I first started, we, we never really talked to, you know, to each other. We didn't talk to our investors um, and the different, um, the different vendors weren't really talking and the different industry organizations Know, didn't kind of share members or have any overlap. And I, I think that's changed a lot too. Speaking of cross-functional and how corporate governance is changing, 
Have you found more overlap too with the compliance function as that has sort of expanded and there's been, as part of this focus on ESG, there's been emphasis on supply chain management and things like that. And it feels like sometimes corporate secretaries are getting pulled into those types of things that maybe they wouldn't have traditionally dealt with. Have you been experiencing that at all? Yeah, I have. I think that's going to depend a lot on the company. Yeah. So, you know, we're a smaller company um, compared to some and um, kind of because of the, of the of the area that I'm in and my role at the company and the fact that, you know, that I, I kind of created something that people didn't know what it was, I get involved in, in all kinds of things yeah. that a, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily consider governance. I mean, ERM is one. I don't run ERM. That's run, you know, completely separately by, you know, another group within the company. But I do get involved in that a lot, both because, the board is interested and the board gets regular reports. And of course, if anything's being reported to the board, then I'm going to be involved in it in some, in some way. And, and also just because a lot of what, you know, the ERM focuses is on how you're, how you're governing. Right. Um, so, so yeah, there's definitely overlap there. Compliance is, is another thing. I think it depends on the company for us because we're in financial services. Compliance takes on a little bit of a different yeah, meaning because, yeah. Most of our compliance efforts are really on some of our regulatory obligations, but I definitely know of other corporate governance professionals that are heavily involved in compliance or are, you know, both the, you know, corporate governance officer, the corporate secretary, and the compliance professional because there's so much overlap. Yeah, interesting. I was just interested in your perspective on that. And then looking ahead, what do you see happening in the future? Do you think there are any emerging governance trends that you think will become mainstream in the next five to 10 years or so? Yeah, absolutely. I think I have to probably focus here on ESG again, just because it's such a new area. And five or 10 years ago, I'm not sure it really, it didn't exist or it didn't necessarily have the widespread um, recognition that it has now. So I'm hopeful, and, and I think it will happen that, you know, over the next five to 10 years, I think the ESG space will land somewhere that expects corporations to provide relevant data that's material to them and that the users of the data are, are getting what they need and are happy with it. If we don't get there, then I think the current system is, is going to continue to kind of cause, cause issues for, for the issuers as well as for the users because there's just there's too much information out there that's difficult to compare um, and it's difficult to, to provide. Um, so, you know, I'm hoping that that that, that kind of comes together. I, I also hope that the disclosure system generally changes. As you both know, the disclosures that public companies provide, um, the system, while it gets tweaked and it gets revised and there's, you know, new, new amendments and new rulemakings all the time from the SEC, it's still pretty antiquated. I mean, we're filing, you know, 50 or 100-page reports every quarter and expecting our investors to just kind of print them out and read them. And I don't know how, how practical that is. So I'm optimistic that eventually we'll come to a place where there's kind of real-time disclosure of the things that matter and we can, you know, post something on a website or on a dashboard and investors just kind of know where to get it. And it's not, you know, it's not this Let's have drafting sessions. Um, you know, it takes tons of management time to to pull together. You know, a hundred page 10K or whatever. 
Well, I'm glad you're optimistic. I was at the SEC in the early 2000s when they were starting, or they were still working on disclosure simplification then as well. So it is a very yeah, slow process. It has. I'm, I'm optimistic. Like I said, I w there was an SEC roundtable uh, maybe a month ago, and, and, and there were a lot of people who, who spoke on this issue. And the one thing that was pretty unanimous is that there has to be a way to do this better. Everyone had different ideas about how it could be done better, but you know, the SEC heard us, and I think they also want to make it, you know, a, a system that's more efficient and more usable. So we'll see what comes out of it. Yeah, definitely. So one seminal question and our final question that we're asking all interviewees because we're curious to see across the board is what do you think women in the corporate governance field can add to the current conversation on the societal role of companies? Yeah, so I knew you were going to ask that because um, I, I listened to your prior podcast. And it, I, I, I actually don't think that women governance professionals have a particular role to play on the societal role of companies any more than anyone else. Um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that, but um, I, I think women have an important role to play in governance and ensuring that, that the representation of women on boards and in the C-suite um, along with all other kinds of diverse candidates, continues to grow. Um, I think that diversity in the boardroom and, you know, in executive management is, is super important and that companies will only benefit um, and stock, stockholders will only benefit if, you know, there's those diverse views. I, I kind of have different thoughts about the societal role of companies, and this has been, you know, a recent headline about what a company's, you know, mission is and who it's supposed to be serving. And, and it, it troubles me a little bit. I'm, I'm definitely in the camp that a company exists for their stockholders. And I'm probably in that camp because it's a very kind of legal view. And I'm a pretty black and white person. But I, I don't think that companies um, exist for the purpose of all of the stakeholders. I think that except for special purpose companies, which I'm just going to carve out from this conversation, I think that actions that a company takes that benefit employees, vendors, and the community at large uh, in an intentional way sh should be taken by companies, but they need to reflect positively on the company's stock price and benefit the stockholders. I think if companies are taking actions that benefit these other stakeholders to the detriment of their stockholders, then I don't see how that's a sustainable system. Um, and just, I mean, for example, I don't think a company should raise employee pay if the company doesn't see a long-term benefit. The benefits might be happier, more productive employees and less turnover. And if that's the case, then ultimately that should benefit the bottom line, that should benefit the stock price, that should benefit the stockholders. Um, but I do think ultimately companies need to keep an eye on not on the stockholders. I definitely appreciate that other stakeholders matter, but I think they matter in the context of achieving company's mission of enhancing stockholder value. Well said. Yeah. There's been a lot of commentary on that, and, and I feel like we could talk for hours about it. So that was uh, so well put that I'm just going to leave it there. Thank you, Stacey, and thanks everyone for joining us for this episode of Women Governance Gurus. Please subscribe on whatever platform you use for podcasts and rate us. This episode is sponsored by Elm Sustainability Partners. Elm Sustainability Partners brings you Rethink, 
sustainability and ESG expectations, as we were just discussing, have never been higher. Uh, More than 250 ESG ratings frameworks have developed in the past 24 months. And that kind of gives me a panic attack to think about. But what this tells us is that business-to-business relationships and consumer demand are increasingly defined by ESG performance. Get your complimentary 15-minute ESG program maturity evaluation and report by completing the Contact Us form at www.elmsustainability.com and mentioning Women Governance Gurus in the next four weeks. And catch the book Killing Sustainability from Elm's Lawrence Heim, which is available in paperback or for Kindle on Amazon.